Hello, Dancewell listeners. This is Ellie Kushner, and welcome to episode 85, Who Can Dance on Point? Pre-point screening is the apparent subject of this episode, but there's so much more in here than initially meets the eye. Historically, screenings were a method of gatekeeping, and in many places today, they still are. Early selection for flexibility and certain proportions were used to determine who could dance at the Kirov and who could not for example. In this already exclusive field of ballet, how many potentially great careers were dismissed too early on thanks to a screening process? How many creative innovations of dusty traditions were discouraged? Have you seen Hiplay, the Three Yates sisters, or the Trocaderos? What would have happened if these artists had failed their pre-point screening and been discouraged from dancing? If, by the way, you haven't seen these, please visit our resources page on our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com, for some really fun videos. In this episode, Jackie Greenhaas, whose contributions to our field I've long admired, speaks about her very holistic, supportive approach to screening and why she has a no-fail policy. In addition to thinking about who gets to wear point shoes, we also touch on who constitutes a dance educator, a question that's been on my mind a lot lately. And of course, we also talk about the missing data and screenings, the importance of lower leg strength, and a lot more that you may or may not expect. Jackie is a licensed athletic trainer and recently retired as performing arts medicine program manager for Mercy Health at the Cincinnati Ballet. She's a former professional ballet dancer and has her BA in dance from the University of South Florida. Her athletic training certificate is through the University of Cincinnati, and she is currently working on her MA at Northern Kentucky University. Ms. Haas has a Pilates for Rehabilitation certification from Polestar Education in Miami, and she's also the director of Dance Medicine Academic Seminars, speaking to dancers and healthcare practitioners throughout the United States on performing arts medicine, injury risk, pre-point screenings, and how to use Pilates as a tool for training dancers. Jackie is proud to be the author of two editions of Dance Anatomy, a human kinetics publication, which has sold over 60,000 copies, including one to me, which I very much adore. Jackie has also enjoyed presenting on performing arts medicine topics at the National Athletic Trainers Annual Meetings, and she's a member of the International Association of Dance Medicine Science and the National Athletic Trainers Association. Ms. Haas currently teaches dance physiology, Pilates, foundations, and ballet at Northern Kentucky University's School of the Arts. She also enjoys teaching her dance medicine workshops at Planet Dance, as well as Pilates for Dancers at McGing Irish Dancers, both in Cincinnati. And now, without further ado, I bring you episode 85, Who Can Dance on Point? Buckle your seatbelt. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological training. And today you are in for treat. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hi, Jackie. I'm so excited that you're here to do this with us today. Thank you. I'm really grateful that you asked. I was happy to hear from you. 
Of course, um, I asked you because I've always had my eye on you because I love your anatomy book. Um, and you recently shared some um, philosophies about point screenings in a Facebook group that we mutually belong to. Um, yeah. And we've spoken on the podcast about screenings in general. Uh, and one of the things that I really liked about what you shared was that it had to do with the sort of like the biopsychosocial yeah. end of the screening. So I really want to dive into that today. We will talk about mechanics, but um, I really want to talk more about sort of the overall experience of a screening and how that can go for dancers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for some people, when if they're not familiar, when we say screenings, um, we might picture like the, ch I always think of the children of theater street, that 1970s <laughs> documentary uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. where they're like, you know, p- pushing the little kids feet and seeing if they're qualified for the Kirov Academy in Russia. Um, and you know, some of us endured similar screenings. I remember certain auditions that were like grand plie in second and let me push your leg to your face and then we'll see if you continue. <laughs> Right. Um, so there's there's that type of screening. Um, but I think most practitioners, many practitioners are using screenings a little bit differently. Do you want to just sort of lay out the landscape of what all exists in the world of screenings? Right, right. So when I retired from from the ballet company, I right away started back into school for athletic training. And I was hired by Wellington Orthopedics, and they had lots of athletic trainers, and all the athletic trainers had high schools that they covered. So I kind of was covering like dance studios and Cincinnati Ballet. And the athletic trainers were doing these pre participation examinations with all of the grade school, middle school, high school. And I thought, man, we should be doing this for dancers. And this was back in. 91, 92. Um, so if you, if you look at when athletic trainers are doing injury assessments, then they may send the dancer to an orthopedic to surgeon or doctor to do an examination. Then they go back to the physical therapist for an evaluation. And I just felt like screening was a great term for it wasn't too intimidating but it it also came with education so we aren't saying to the dancer if you don't pass this screening you won't go on point but this is a more like objective positive um, information tool for you to get better as a dancer that kind of thing Right. I think of it almost as like a, not a spectrum, but these different categories of like, there is screening for gatekeeping, like the Kirov Academy in Russia, you know, yes, yes. are you in or are you out? Um, but you are talking more about injury prevention and education. Yeah. Looking for any red flags for injury risk, um, looking for, um, you know, is there possibly any posterior impingement? Is there already some crunchiness with their flexor halysis longus? I mean, are we looking at um, hallux rigidus or valgus already at the age of 11 or 12? So you're kind of just looking at those things and then educating them on what that really means for them. And also, you got to remember, some studios 
are recreational studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, they and some studios are really wanting to graduate dancers to the professional ballet arena. So it, it kind of depends on the goals of each student and the goals of that studio, too. And we'll talk a little bit more about that balance as we go along. Um, already, I'm hearing you describe your role as sort of simultaneously a medical professional and an educator. You know, I sort of orient myself in the realm of dance education, and we see that dance educators are lots of people. They're not just studio teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people feel that their physios or their physical therapists or their body workers are also dance educators. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you see your role in that screening process and how you balance it? Well, I, one, yes, I totally agree with you. And two, I just finished taking a course um, and the book is called Health Professional as Educator. Mm. I loved it because, um, you know, these assessments for across the board for all educators are always evolving. I mean, we're always looking at how can we better assess what our students are learning. We do that at the college level. We do that at the grade school level, the high school level. So we're doing that too with our dancers. And you know, choreography gets harder and more athletic and dancers want to go on point earlier. And some of them are are dancing at their creative uh, high school and they're dancing at a local studio and they're highly competitive. So some of them are taking 20, 25 hours a week. Yeah. So, you know, it's crazy. So we have to develop ways of teaching them how to go about doing that. We can't stop them. Nobody wants to do that. But um, we have to help them uh, transition onto point in a healthy manner, so to speak. We have to help them and teach them how to deal with the, the changes that are occurring during these growth spurts. We have to teach them um, what to do when they get to a competition and they're going to be taking classes and rehearsals on carpet, which is on top of concrete. So there's all these things thrown, thrown at them. Totally. And I just, yeah, I just feel like it's important to try to be an educator for them. That's great. Um, Let's talk more about that point piece. And um, like you said, they're wanting to get on point earlier and earlier. I believe that to be true, although it's it's probably been a a long time that that has been happening. Um, And, you know, a lot of this is a very frequent question that we see in our field from dance teachers and parents and the students themselves. Lots of people want to know when is it safe to begin dancing in point shoes, right? So um, I don't think there's a a cut and dry answer. Um, So what factors do you consider to be important in assessing point readiness? So this could be a question where we could go on for days. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Um, let me get a snack. (laughs) Yes, right? So, um, I mean, if you look at some studios just set a certain age to make it easier for everybody. Mm -hmm. 
you know, some studio, uh, some uh, studios say, all right, so after you've had so many years of ballet training, then we're going to put you on point. Um, and that makes it easier for everybody across the board. But we all know that they all mature emotionally and physically at different times. And they are dealing with lots of hormone changes and muscular flexibility changes and balance changes. So we know all of that. Um, when, when I'm going to do a, a, a basic screening, you know, I have a long list of things, but in the, at the final, the final answer, I tell them all, look, you are going to rise up onto point and, um, your base of support is going to be a tiny bit bigger than the size of a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so think about that for just a second. You have to have some type of spine trunk core stability you also have to have a certain amount of lower extremity strength so we'll look at all of that but bottom line if you you know if you have if you struggle just to releve on half point you're gonna really have a struggle when you go up on point but again each studio is different some of them may keep them at the bar for three months right Right. Some of them may only be doing 15 minutes twice a week after a, a, a ballet class. So it, you kind of have to get a little history of the studio. Some of them are really into into professional levels. So they may put them on, let's say, in January or February because they've got to be ready to go to a summer intensive and really be on point. You know, so it just it all depends on the goals of the studio. Yeah, that is so um clarifying i mean yeah if you know they're going to spend 15 minutes at the bar only for six weeks you might feel more comfortable with some yeah. students um, right where you wouldn't otherwise encourage them to get on point right and i think also the the question of stability i think about a lot in terms of like stability is a mechanical function that you know we understand through that lens but me- stability is also a sense, right? We have financial stability. We have a sense of stability in our relationship, right? So it's like, there's Mm -hmm. also, I mean, what, what uh, horrid irony is this that we take these young children who are like in this pubescent flux of chaos and introduce this other element of chaos. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, I don't want to say it's all bad because it can be very stimulating and exciting for them. um, But do you ever have students, you know, who just don't seem, you know, if they're afraid to be on point or they don't seem like they understand the risk involved? Do you ever consider those factors? Yeah. Yes, yes. So um, I had to, if we look at late childhood to adolescence, so ages 10, 11, and 12, um, they see themselves uh, and the world a lot differently than we do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and they're, they're like emotional and judgment regulation hasn't even really developed yet. Um, and really they just want to dance with their friends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Most of them, when I, I, when I teach, um, classes for this age group, almost every class, not, not every time, but I say, guys, one at a time, just tell me what you're grateful for. 
And almost everyone's, I'm just so glad to be here dancing with my friends. Mm. You know? Yeah, their whole, it's really their whole, to them. Right. Their whole world revolves around social, you know, importance. And if we put nine of them on point, but we don't put the tenth one on point in that same group, what on earth happens to them? Yeah. You know? So... It, it all, and like you said, again, you got to get the goals down and all of that. But I just feel like it's so important to look at the whole kit, yeah. not just if they've got enough plantar flexion to get themselves up on point. I love that. Um, are there things that you don't consider? I think I um, was surprised not long ago when I heard a teacher say that they still use onset of menstruation as a requirement for going on point, which you know, yeah. people, people are like, but some kids yep. don't get their period till they're 18 and boys, right. and boys never do. Right, <laughs> you know? right, 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 um, right. So, you know, have you heard other things that people use that you think are not relevant or not appropriate as a... Yeah, a... and you know, I think some of it is because they they are dealing with parents they are mm -hmm. dealing with uh the social nightmare of when to go on point they are dealing with um highly competitive young girls yeah. mean girls i mean there's all kinds of bullying there's all kinds of stuff going on so if they just set a certain criteria period that's the way it's going to be mm -hmm. and i think, I think in in some ways, it might keep peace <laughs> at the studio, but you know, but but again, they all develop so differently. So you really, you really have to do a general health screening to be able to make a really good decision. Sometimes, if you maybe you do a screening a year before you even consider this group for point. They all do it together. They can all work together on their exercises and their stretches. And then the following year, they may all be ready to go into the next level. Yeah. And maybe and maybe that is psychologically more healthy. And maybe that will, you know, encourage, you know, healthy relationships too within the within the dancers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, establish this idea that everything is a process and um, we have to begin the process small. Yes. You know, um, sort of educating that end of things. Yes. You mentioned just now a health screening. Um, who do you think is qualified to conduct a point screening? I mean, the thing about screening is it can range from real medical assessment to, you know, a screening of a student's command for dance technique. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think about who's yeah, qualified? I mean, obviously, dance teachers have been doing this forever. Mm -hmm. They have been being the determining factor on on when students can can go on point. And, um, and that's okay. Uh, I, I do think that it should correlate with a health professional. Um, just to give like I love the objective feedback because you can test them. Let's use plantar flexion with a goni. Test them, and in two months you can test them again, and then you can see some type of improvement. And I think 
that's what is helpful and positive feedback for the dancer themselves instead of totally relying on their teacher's personal opinion on when they can go on point. So I do, I do think it should be, it should be both, but in some cases, you know, it doesn't it can't happen be. now. Right. Or, yeah. Um, and they think, you know, a lot of adolescents, a lot of things seem personal. So um, yes. even if it's not, so there's, yes. <laughs> um, that's why an outside eyeball is really helpful. <laughs> totally. And, and we all know that in education, it's not about just saying the information. It's about the synthesis of saying the information and the student being ready to hear it. And, you know, I know I've had students, because um, I'm in the New York area, we would send students to Harkness. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes they come back and say, I never knew I was hyperextended. And I'm thinking, I personally told you about that freshman year, (laughs) but they just weren't ready and that's fine. And so I think also there's that benefit to bringing in an outside person to say perhaps the same thing you've been saying, but just, you know, with a fresh voice and a different perspective and, you know. Just like your own children, you can tell them something 25 times, but they will not hear it until somebody else tells them the same thing. Yep kills me yes no i i totally agree it 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 needs um it takes a village and it does need kind of an outside um eyeball just to assist with what the teacher has been preaching let's talk a little bit about risk assessment um i think a lot of what we're doing is trying to educate about risk and sometimes we say we're trying to reduce risk but we don't really know, right? It's really hard to get data about whether or not you've prevented injuries. Um, What do we, do we know anything about the risks of starting point too soon? Um, What do you think might be the risks? I know. It's like, what are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You you and I both know there, there, there isn't any data unless I miss something here um, on uh, whether or not going on point at the age of nine means that you will definitely have more ankle sprains or something like that. Um, and I know that the dance medicine field is, is trying to make a shift away from so-called injury prevention and use the term more injury risks. So I get that. Um, and you, you know, I mean, I've seen dancers that have had the worst feet that I have ever seen, and they have had a very professional ballet career. Yep. Right? So, and and I've seen dancers that have absolutely no turnout who have turned out to have a really nice professional ballet career. So what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Why are we doing it? And I think some of it is because dance is you're going to get hurt. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. Um, So the more you know about how to take care of yourself, the better. I think that dancers, if they are serious about dancing at at ages 10, 11, 12, the more they can learn about self-care now, the better for their future. I think that um, it's it's more about 
teaching them to think more sciencey <laughs> as they learn to move than just randomly moving. Mm-hmm. You know, so that they they think more about their anatomy and they think more about the muscles and and how it all works. The the it, it's so much more efficient for them down the road instead of just blindly going into it and not understanding how to land from a jump with less torque and um, how important it is for the transverse abdominis and those little multifidus muscles to be anchoring your spine. All those things are so important to learn earlier. I wish I had learned it earlier in my career, honestly. And I think also, I always come back to this idea of like strategic training, which I feel like we don't do as much of in dance, where it's like, like you said earlier on, what are the goals and what are the goals of the student? What are the goals of the studio? And then how does that relate to where they're at? Because, you know, if the student has very little turnout and enjoys ballet, but doesn't love it, you mm-hmm. know, fine. If the student, you know, really wants to, they're hung up on ballet and they love it and there's nothing else that will ever work for them. You know, it's like, well, there may be some struggles and and you may take some risks and you might do some stretching that we don't, you know, we don't say is good in dance medicine, but, you know, it, you've decided it's a risk and it's a risk assessment. Yeah. Okay. So for example, I had a student a couple of weeks ago, um, I was doing a pre-point um, screening. Her mom was there. The instructor was there. And she was, I think, maybe 13. And so she, she was strong and, and more skeletally mature than some of the other girls. But she had just this horrible, rigid forefoot. She had her mama's bunions already. And she had this um, definite posterior impingement. So we talked about it and she said, I, I'm, I'd be willing to go and see a doctor to get an x-ray, but I just want to try point. Yeah. I just want to try it. That's all. And, and, and she's like, I love jazz. I love hip hop. That's my thing, but I just want to try point. So, and her, and, and I, we talked, we all talked about it. Mom, instructor, dancer. So you know what? She she will probably get herself an x-ray. She will probably show a little ostrigona, maybe. And then she can make the decision herself if this is something that's worth it for her. I also have um, had a student in the past who was a really nice ballet dancer, but she just wanted to be a rockette. Yeah. She didn't want to, she didn't want to go on point. She did her point assessment. She she was like, "This is awesome. I'm going to keep working on my lower leg strength. I'm going to keep I'm working need on it in my- those heels." Yes, yes, <laughs> right. I'm going to keep stretching my hammies, and she did great. So it it all depends on what they want. Totally, and you know, this is already making me think about um, this hip lay, which kind of took social media by storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is like, you know. I just think about how when we use screenings for gatekeeping, you know, we're taking this already super exclusive field and making it more exclusive and 
reducing creative possibilities. You know, these students who like, well, what if I don't want to use a point shoe the way Pettipa intended? (laughs) What if I want to do something totally new with a point shoe Um, or the Trocaderos? You know, so it's like there are so many possibilities. I um, went to YouTube because I remember watching a video years ago and I found it, it was the three Yates sisters from 1936 doing this fabulous toe-tapping number. Wow. They did um, time steps and wings, and they, they, they were, the whole thing was on point, in point shoes. And I'm sure, I'm sure they didn't get a screening. Right. But, but they did fabulous, you know? Yeah. If 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 the if the trucks or any of the hip lay dancers or the, any of the toe tappers, they would still learn from a screening, even though it doesn't matter because they went on point anyhow, mm-hmm. you know. But they could still learn about educating themselves on how to not sprain an ankle or what strength they need in their hips and their legs and their core, all of that would still be very beneficial, I think. I loved in your Facebook post that I referenced earlier, you know, you were saying you have a no fail, like nobody's going to fail a screening. (laughs) Um, And yet, like, yeah, we know that there are certain circumstances like that, which you just mentioned, the, you know, posterior impingement, the really, really rigid foot, the um, total lack of plantar flexion in the ankle. Um, So, yeah. So how do you like walk us through what the screening is like for a student with some of those conditions? So um, I, I, I want to obviously develop a rapport with, with the student um, when they come in and, and I try to get a little bit of history um, what school they're from, how many classes a week they, they take, how many hours they rehearse, you know, what are their goals. Um, and, and I do ask if they could help me with um, a list of injuries they may have had. And at the, it's funny, at the beginning of the screening, they all say, oh, I've never had any injuries. Never. Right, right. And they look at their mom and their mom doesn't say anything. And I'm like to myself, I'm like, you've been dancing since the age of six and you haven't had one injury. Okay. So you start, then we start talking through it. I'll go through, you know, it, just a general obser- observation. I'll maybe looking at their feet, looking at their knees, um, maybe do a little scoliosis check. Um, are their scapula kind of winging? Um, I look for forward head posture, which is another interesting um, tip here. Uh, 20 years ago, I probably had Mm. one out of 50 forward head. And now almost all of them, because, you know, their phones and whatever, just poor posture. Um, And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk, we talk through it all. So, and I can get the kids to kind of start opening up. And then we'll look at uh, range of motion of their great toe, their plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. Um, I do look at uh, hip external rotation, and I can do it prone or supine or seated. And I'm still talking with them. We look at hamstring flexibility. I still love doing the Thomas test, you know, for hip flexor, IT band, quad. 
Uh, and then we, we get into more functional stuff and uh, a kind of assess alignment and plie releve, um, single leg balance with turnout. Um, I'll look at a plank, a 30-second plank. I'm still talking to them, I'm giving them cues, telling them what I'm looking for. Um, a single leg releve, you know, for endurance. I've added like a, a just a PK to passe test um, just to look for how to, how they, the process, how they get on their leg um, and how much control they have. And then I do a little turned out hop test. So as we go through it all, about maybe halfway, three quarters of the way through, their their mom or their they'll say, you know, my knee has been bothering me. And last year and last year I sprained my ankle pretty good. And so, you know, and it's like, oh, really? You didn't want to tell me that in the first five minutes that we got here? So, you know, it they start trusting you a little bit and 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 you, you never know what they have been told prior to coming in. Right. You know, I, I try to educate the teachers and tell them that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to educate. I'm here to look at weaknesses and give them exercises and stretches. I'm here to promote their strengths. Um, and I'm not going to fail them. So by the time we get to the end, um, then we give them all, they all get exercises, personal exercises to do and how many reps and how many times a week. And, um, and then I encourage them to follow up in two to three months so we can take more measurements and see where they are. So it, it, it's more of um, kind of developing a relationship. Um, it's a way to obviously educate, but then if we need to refer them somewhere, we can do that too. Mm-hmm. So kind of, and it, it's promoting the whole science, education, health yes. education. Totally. I mean, I think the whole, like, there's so many layers to what you're doing in that process. And one of the layers is um, educating young dancers about the value of a dance specific practitioner, (laughs) you know, because a lot of them will say, you know, I'll say, oh, did you see a dance specific orthopedic? No, but I saw this doctor, he works with all the major baseball teams. (laughs) Okay, well, that's not ballet, you know, like that's yeah, not yeah. modern dance. Um, and, you know, we don't always have access to people like you. But um, when we do, I find, you know, students leave these screenings being like, wow, that's amazing. She knew what a plie yes. was and she could explain to me why that's hard for me. And, you know, yes. it really excites them about seeing a medical professional to help with their problems. Yeah. And I, I have had so many times, um, in fact, I, I uh, started teaching this class at Northern Kentucky University and I've got a freshman. She said, you may not remember me, but you did three point screening when I was 11. I'm like, oh my gosh. Wow. So nice. And she had a good experience. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, I think it's helpful. I don't know. I hope it is. I hope it is. Right. Um, what do you do if you, if you encounter a student where it's like, oh my gosh, this student has no plantar flexion, how, how do you talk about that? And how do you discuss with them their potential hurdles ahead? Yeah. So I have said many times, um, what do you, how do you feel about your feet Mm -hmm. and, um, have your instructors given you some cues on, 
your your feet. And and you know, they all say, yeah, I know they're not great. <laughs> I try. I know they're not great. It's nothing new. And so I I try to give them maybe a different group of exercises or stretches. Um, and and we do we do talk about their goals then. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd say if you if you want to try point, it's going to be a challenge. You know, it really is going to be a challenge. But I I give this advice to the parent, to the student, and to the instructor, and then the instructor can decide if they're going to go on point or not. Right, or if they're going to go on point at that studio or not, or right. yeah, what the right. next step and, is. Yeah, and we have seen that where kids will just go to a different studio where they let them all go on point at a certain age. Mm-hmm. Different you expectations, know. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, We've talked, I think we think a lot about the risks of point work um, as we all ice our bunions and whatever. Yeah, right. Um, But, you know, I I think we also recognize that these funny shoes can be helpful. We, you know, Mm -hmm. there's been these trends at times of suggesting that young males do point work or, you know, what are um, so just so that we don't leave the poor point shoe on a bad note. Um, What are some of the values of, of point work, even if um, a student isn't going to have perhaps a career in ballet? Well, it, it, it is a very expensive therapeutic tool, but you know, uh, I remember getting fitted for shoes a hundred years ago and it was only $35 for my very first pair of point shoes. It is not that today. Anyhow, uh, I, I can fully understand wanting to, to elevate yourself and use your midfoot, your intrinsics, your extrinsics to get you up on that shoe and really feel like powerful, you know? Mm-hmm. So I understand the, the need to do that. And I think it's I think it's a good tool for working your feet for sure. And I've had several instructors say, I'd l- "I know she's not quite ready. We're just going to stay at the bar, but I would really like for her to get in that shoe to help get her up on her leg." Mm-hmm. So you know, and so yeah, and and I know I've had I've had um, friends who are male dancers over the years that have bought shoes for the very same reason. And I think qualitatively, too, I have a friend who teaches a lot of um, recreational point dancers, and she says, you know, you can't crawl your way up there. You know, it really helps them learn attack and sort of a quick shift of weight that you don't have to do when you're on a larger surface. Right, right. And there there are so many fabulous brands now, um, the way they're um, structuring sizes and your, your forefoot can be wider and your heel can be leaner. I mean, there's so many, the shank can be this, that, or the other. There's so many cool ways of really designing the shoe to fit your particular foot now than there were years ago. Yeah. That science has come along. Oh yeah. Um, Jackie, this has been great. Um, is there anything else? Have we covered everything? Are there thoughts that you want to leave us with or more that you want to add? I don't, I don't know. I think we're, I think we covered it. I think we, I think so. Great. Um, yeah, I just love that idea of really thinking about the whole dancer when you're doing these screenings and 
Um, just really appreciate your thoughts on that. Thank you. You're welcome. There's just, especially with the quarantine and the pandemic and there's so much going on now emotionally and mentally. I, I feel like we have to be so careful. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Jackie. You're welcome. So great to hear from you. I appreciate it. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation to Dancewell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.